got a good group assembling here. We'll wait just a quick second for our moderator to join, and then we'll go ahead and get going. If you guys give me a quick thumbs up, if you guys can hear me, is the sound sound working? All right. We will be off and running in just a quick second. <clears throat> and if the 5 o'clock hour gets here before our moderator does, we're just going to go we're gonna go without a moderator. I think we'll probably have a pretty small group today because of the time of year. Sound is low. Let me see if I can adjust that. You guys can barely hear me. Let's see if I can do something about that. How's that? Is that better? How's that? Sound, no sound? Sound, no sound? Thumbs up, so coming. Give me a couple more yeses. We're good. Look at that. Aren't we a happy family here? Um. Everybody, it's time for my talk. I'm 30 minutes early, by the way. You all are here because of the invitation. So I'm going to get started, um, and we're just going to kind of run into this, if that's okay. I'm having a little bit of difficulty with getting my times right on this. I wanted to push it back to 530 so that folks on the West Coast have time from getting back to be able to join the discussion. Some of the, the commentary that I was hearing was that I was um, – starting too early people weren't able to get into it and then that pushed it back to 8 30 east coast time so we're gonna we're gonna try this 5 30 uh thing if that's okay but we're at five and i invited you so we're not gonna wait we're gonna keep going james thanks for jumping in the queue we'll, we'll, we'll get going in just a second hang out there be real patient real quick let me do a couple of the quick uh housekeeping items that you guys have become accustomed to this is mic drop here on the call-in app Thank you all so much for joining us here on a regular scheduled talk at 5 o'clock, 5.30 on Wednesdays. Still working that part out. Um, you can get your uh, these podcast episodes, which are recorded um, on the Colin app or anywhere you get your podcast. Apple, Spotify. I get mine on, on Spotify and or Apple, just depending on what where I'm at and where I'm listening to them. But pretty much anywhere you get your, your regularly scheduled mic drops. Um, Peg, how are you? Um, you? That's where you should be able to pick them up. So, <clears throat> without uh, too much uh, too much further ado, I did want to revisit a little bit more of the discussion that we were having last time for a couple of reasons. The first, I know there was a lot of questions and follow up. It was also a very odd mic drop. I mean, we don't usually do a show like that. One it was very short, it was very condensed, 
and it, it wasn't political. And I don't want to be terribly political at a time when um, when there's so much going on. I want to talk about some of the bigger picture dynamics that are going to be framing the 2024 election cycle. And I think the story of what is happening with Twitter is actually a much bigger story than most people are recognizing. It's not that they're giving it short shrift. I just simply don't think that they're aware of it. And the reason why I twi- I, I titled this show Twitter Trump in 2016 is because Twitter was such an important part of what drove the media narrative for Trump and allowed him to consolidate a small share of the Republican base vote. Small share, you say, Mike? Yeah, small share. Let me take you back into the time machine and remind you really quickly. (coughs) Sorry, guys, I can already tell I have a little bit of a water issue going on. The... um, Republican primaries, we have to remember this. The Republican primaries are what we, most of them, if not all of them, about 80, 85% of them, (coughs) sorry, are what we call winner-take-all primaries. It's very different than the Democratic primaries. Let me explain, just as a primer, we're going to be walking through this a lot as we get closer and candidates start announcing start talking about, (coughs) sorry, the strategies of the different parties. A winner-take-all primary means that the top vote-getter in each state gets all of the delegates that go to the convention for the party, in this case the Republican Party, to vote for that candidate. Okay? The the Democratic Party used to be uh, structured the same way. They were both winner-take-all. Starting around the 70s, definitely in the 80s, the Democrats changed those rules considerably (coughs) because they were looking for greater representation of the electorate. And as a result, the Democrats have come up with, I don't want to call it a convoluted system, but it's pretty complicated. It is a pretty complicated system where um, you have to meet, each state has it done differently. It's why you'll remember in 2016, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton kept slugging it out all the way to the end. In uh, 2008, you'll remember Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were slugging it out almost all the way to the end. The reason is because of the representation of the Democratic primaries, what you have is the ability for a contender to keep within relative parity of the front runner. It's very hard to blow open a race and put a race away and have one Democrat in the field run away with the whole darn thing. It's just very, very complicated. One buffer to that, and I know I'm getting a little bit off topic here, is Super Tuesday is so significant. And this was particularly important in uh, 2020 because, as you'll recall, Bernie Sanders was leading very strongly heading into Super Tuesday when um, Bernie Sanders was leading a very large Democratic field heading into Super Tuesday when Biden then wins the South Carolina primary and picks up a huge number of those states. And then you had Pete Buttigieg, to his credit, dropping out, then Amy Klobuchar dropping out, recognizing that that would help Joe Biden secure the nomination early and prevent a long, sordid, knockdown, drag-out fight with, with Bernie Sanders, which would hurt the nomination 
And the goal here was to sacrifice yourself and your candidacy so that Donald Trump could be beaten. Now, that stands in sharp contrast to the Republicans in 2016 who couldn't care less about the future of the party. They were really focused on thinking that every one of them was focused on their ability to win and beat Donald Trump. And so none of those candidates were dropping out. <coughs> Guys, I am struggling here. None of those candidates dropped out, as you'll recall. And in a, in a winner-take-all primary, all you needed was a plurality. As long as you're the top vote-getter, <coughs> excuse me, if you were the top vote-getter, you were going to win all of the delegates in that state. And so the Republicans had a 16-candidate field in 2016. Very important because, guys, I hate to do this. i got to get some water. Give me one second, okay? All right, my apologies. Did we lose anybody? You guys are the best hanging in there with me. <clears throat> so the Republicans have this primary where uh, 16 candidates are running. So as long as you beat the other 15, you can split all the votes 15 different ways. And as long as you get one more vote than the second place guy, you get all the delegates of the state. And that's what happened, if you'll remember, is none of the Republicans were dropping out. Rubio was like, I'm going to be the guy. Jeb was like, I'm going to be the guy. Ted Cruz was like, I'm going to be the guy. The, 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 nobody would drop out. Kasich went all the way to California. This would not drop out, and it did not allow the anti-Trump section of the party to consolidate and beat Donald Trump. <coughs> you have to remember, in 2016, there was a very, very strong contingency of anti-Trump sentiment in the Republican base. Let me say that again, because it sounds like it was a thousand years ago. In the 2016 primaries, there was a very strong, pervasive sentiment in the Republican Party to not have Donald Trump be the nominee. But the Republican Party was split too many ways to prevent him from, from the anti-Trump wing of the party, which was the majority, a significant majority, by the way, to prevent him from, from securing the nomination. So we were just watching this slow train wreck happening over and over and over and over again, state by state by state. Nobody would drop out. And so... People don't remember this, but history will you'll bear this out when we look back and examine this period in American history. The majority, and not a small majority, a very clear majority of Republicans in the 2016 primary did not vote for Donald Trump. But because they are winner-take-all primaries, Donald Trump had a pretty significant lead in the, uh, the delegate count going into the Republican National Committee Convention. Why Why are you talking about this, Mike? What, why, what does this have to do with anything? We're here to talk about Twitter and Trump and to talk about these different dynamics. And the answer is this. Uh, Twitter in 2016, we have to recall, <coughs> was a tool that was being used, I would suggest manipulated, and I almost want to say in a complimentary way by Donald Trump because he was so damn shameless. We'd never seen anything like that before in an American politician, 
driving the attention and the media focus. Anything the guy did, the media had to cover it. He drove CNN particularly nuts and attacked CNN specifically, but the viewership of CNN exploded. Cable news became this spectacle, and a lot of the messaging was driven by changing what we used to call the 24-hour news cycle, which was dominating cable news media into the Twitter cycle. And so what was happening was there was a book that actually came out in the mid-1990s about the, the Bill Clinton White House called Spin Cycle. And Spin Cycle was the was this notion that the media not narrative, the media news cycle, because of the ubiquitous nature of news channels, was condensing the, uh, the, the cycle for media. And so the ability to manipulate that as a White House was part of the mastery of what the Clintons were able to do during Bill Clinton's first and second administrations. Very smart, very astute, is recognizing the change in the media landscape. And it literally became a 24-hour news cycle. This was very different than anything we had seen before the Clinton years, the Bill Clinton years, okay? Very different. And commanding each day's media cycle, there was a lot of criticism about it because people were like, people's attention spans are getting shorter. If you just play the, 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 the news cycle day by day, it's not good for democracy. We're not getting this good substantive debate. Everybody's speaking in sound bites. It's all designed to speak to media cameras and all these arguments that so many of us have heard before. A lot of truth to all of it. <clears throat> what we never envisioned was that 24-hour news cycle would get even further condensed with the advent of social media, Twitter specifically. Twitter was so immediate and became a platform that so many people were using that the 24-hour news cycle was dramatically condensed to an instantaneous news cycle and it was dependent and driven by whatever Donald Trump was tweeting on that given day. And what he was saying was usually so over the top, racially offensive, homophobic, misogynistic, xenophobic, you name it, he was attacking somebody. It was forcing media attention on this spectacle, like watching a car crash over and over and over again. And what it did was it started to manipulate the viewership of cable news. And let me explain why. If you look at the actual day parts, and by day parts, I mean how many eyeballs, how many viewers are actually watching cable news at any one given time, most of these day parts aren't usually more than maybe 150, 200,000 viewers. It's not a whole hell of a lot, okay? But why do it's not? It's just not. The one of the reasons why some of these talking heads, the Rachel Maddows, the Sean Hannitys, command so much money is because cable news, these cable news shows are tied into the cable packages and they're negotiated into these larger deals. They're not reliant as much on advertisers. This is very important, okay? And if you're not relying on advertisers, you got a lot more leeway to do a lot of different things, even though your market penetration is not that significant. So, so what, Mike? You're getting 200,000 eyeballs at any one given time watching the Simone Sanders show or, um, you know, uh, I don't know who's on Fox anymore, uh, but, but a, a comparable show midday. Now, imagine somebody who's got three, four, five, six million Twitter followers, like Donald Trump did, far more than any other presidential candidate running in that field. That viewership was as significant, or I would argue, 
considerably more significant than a lot of the day parts that the CNNs of the world were watching. And so what was happening was Donald Trump was literally driving viewership from his own personal platform to augment the numbers of what these cable shows were getting. Okay, and those clicks then, if you look at the CNN online and the, 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 uh, the written elements of it, started to really blow up the traffic on their sites, which they could then add additional revenue to by demonstrating through analytics that they were starting to get eyeballs. Does that make sense? So all of this goes to suggest that by manipulating the, the, the news cycle with your own personal following, you can actually change the calculus of what becomes news, like what literally is the news, because those news outlets have to chase those people that are driving the most traffic. And then it becomes a snowball effect and it gets bigger and bigger for both of them. Trump gets bigger, CNN gets bigger, the fight of the media, he's always pointing at the high riser saying, you guys are bad in the media. That's literally what is forcing them to show this stuff and they're monetizing it. They're a part of it. They're being manipulated, they're being attacked, but they're also making money off of it. That's what was going on. That was what was happening in 2016. We heard a lot about this. I'm just giving, I'm just giving you guys some of this background to help explain what was happening in the 2016 cycle. And Twitter, couldn't do this with Facebook, Twitter was the platform where this was happening. Twitter was also the platform that has, has, not had, but has a lot of the opinion leaders. It's not just the blue check crowd and the resistors and the big you know, names out there. It's also the journalists and the people that are covering the media, uh, um, the, the political um, happenings day by day. So Twitter became the platform for journalists. Now, this basically tortures the country for four long years, as you'll recall, from 2016 till about January, February of 2020. What happens in January, February 2020? Well, <clears throat> about eight innovative people Republican consultants gets together at the Lincoln Project and say, wait a second, combined, combined, we have enough Twitter followers to do the same thing that he's doing, except we can play the same game he's playing because we can be as shameless as he is, and we can build out a bigger audience because with all of us doing this, we can start an echo chamber that shuts down his ability to force all of the attention onto himself. Does that make sense? And that's what that's essentially why and how the Lincoln Project starts to snuff out Donald Trump's ability to command the media cycle. Is we would use a technique called bracketing. And bracketing was in, in politics when someone's gonna have like a press conference, for example, of which the president was having many during COVID, and he'd come out and say something really stupid, we would do things as a lead up to start driving all of our millions of followers to start messaging into this maelstrom, much bigger than his voice was. The journalists are seeing it. The press is seeing it. The cable news shows are seeing it. The president has his event. And then we would come around really quickly on the other end, a bracket, and contain the message by putting out an ad that would embarrass the living hell out of this guy, right? And that would contain 
the the reach that he originally had before the Lincoln Project, it was all Trump all the time. Okay, remember this. Just looking back historically, what we were what we were really doing was we created in the digital era in the time of the nonstop media cycle the ability to shut down and limit some of the noise that he was he had been able to to commandeer and command all by himself. It's the first time that that happened. So there was more attention and more focus on something and some bodies other than Donald Trump. When it was just Marco Rubio taking him on, he'd wipe him out in an afternoon. When it was just Ted Cruz taking him on, he'd wipe him out. He could even take on Fox News. Remember, he took out Megyn Kelly. Why? Because he could also get the eyeballs of MSNBC and CNN on top of Fox. When he had a consorted effort of people putting out constant content and driving message around it, it severely limited his ability to commandeer the focus and the news cycle and draw the exclusive, exclusive attention of the news shows. So that's in large part what was happening. I'm not saying that that was the intent or the design, but that's ultimately what manifested. That's ultimately what ended up what ended up being a part of the success of the Lincoln Project was our ability to commandeer and command so much of the media attention that was um, that was emanating at that time. <clears throat> okay, now this, uh, of course, with Elon Musk taking over. One quick second. With Elon Musk taking over, um, what you have is that what is what is increasingly happening is this atomization, this deconstruction now of these platforms. And in many ways, what's happening to the internet, at least at this moment in time, I'm not suggesting this is going to last, but it has literally been a part of, I think, a defining characteristic of the last four or five weeks, and probably will be for a few months to come, is this flattening, is people leaving, escaping, running from Twitter and going to the mastodons or the posts of the world. I don't know what's going to fill the void of Twitter, but what I will say is this. Twitter's not going to go away in and of itself unless it collapses into bankruptcy. And even if it collapses into bankruptcy, the creditors are going to be able to figure out and do something with the platform. There are just far too many people on it for it to simply go away. I mean, I guess, and I'm not a tech guy, but conceivably it could become so convoluted and so impossible to architect and structure that it just collapses on its own. I don't see that happening. I think the most likely part is that what's going to happen is uh, Twitter will sort of become the Fox News. What Fox News is to cable TV is what Twitter will become. It will become a plurality of the people online. The reporters are too vested in it. Frankly, folks, all the blue checks people, including all the resistors, are too invested in it. And politics isn't the majority of what is going on on Twitter. It's the majority of your and my life, but it's not the majority of what is going on on Twitter. So there's enough infrastructure to keep Twitter going for a very, 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 very long time. I'm not saying it's going to make money. I'm not saying there isn't going to be restructuring. I think both of those things are real significant challenges for Twitter, but I don't see it necessarily going away. I do see the rise of two or three competitors. If it sounds like I'm equating this to what happened with cable news, I that's exactly what I'm saying, is Twitter will become basically the Fox News of social media, and you'll have a Mastodon, which might be like an MSNBC, and then you'll have a Post, which will be like a CNN, and you'll have three, two or three or four 
different platforms, people will vote with their feet, as I've said before on Twitter, urging people to get off of Twitter and find a different home that is more comfortable and consistent with their ethics and with their with their belief system than monetizing a platform that is basically allowing unfettered, crazy hate speech. The attacks I've been getting are, I've, I haven't seen anything like this since the Lincoln Project first launched. The, it's not just bots either, although there's a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of bots that are coming back. And if, if Musk allows all these banned accounts to come back this week as he's promised, I think it's going to go through the roof. I think it's going to be a very, very significant problem. And like I said, a lot of people have either left the platform entirely or what a lot of the blue checks are doing is gradually migrating over to post, setting up a position on Mastodon and trying to ride out the storm, posting on multiple platforms as people are moving away from Twitter or at least adding to their social media profile in the event that Twitter does become this wasteland of hate uh, or collapse on its own weight, that they've got a life raft to be still involved and engaged in a social media community and a network that they're talking about these things um, without having to start completely from scratch. This this movement, this Twitter migration, as they call it on Mastodon, is happening. It's very real. Um, you're seeing about a 5% increase monthly onto Mastodon, which is about 350,000 new viewers, uh, new users a month. It's about 5,000 a day. Um, I think it started to slow a little bit. Massive spikes when Musk bought it. Massive spikes when Twitter announced the layoffs. Huge spikes when Trump came on. People are fleeing uh, pretty regularly. Uh, I think you're also, it's also fair to say the, the, the quality of Twitter has gone down. I've cut back significantly on my postings on Twitter. I'm posting this show. Not a whole lot more than that. Am I checking it? Yeah, a lot more, a lot less frequently, a lot, lot, lot less frequently. Uh, it's great for my mental health. It's great for getting to know people again, go outside, get some fresh air. Um, but that is, that is, it is, it is no question is absolutely happening. So what does all this have to do with the 2024 cycle? The question is going to become this. The question is going to be, does, and, and Trump to this point is not, obviously is not on Twitter. And we can, we can speculate as to whether that's a political move or a business move. My strong suspicion is it's probably both led first and foremost, as most of this is, by a business move. Is the weakening of Twitter also increases the likelihood of the strengthening of truth social. Okay, why is that? It's kind of similar to when Trump took on Fox and you saw the rise of One American News Network and Newsmax. He was creating an opening where he could own a media platform. And that's what he's done. And my sense is that Trump loyalists, <coughs> while they're looking, taking a good look at Twitter, are doing the same thing on the right that a lot of us, I guess, could be characterized on the left, are doing, which is having a multi-platform presence. A lot of people that are on Truth Social are also on Twitter and vice versa. And I think there's a lot of MAGA-type folks who are on both platforms trying to hedge their bets. And what's happening is these multi-platform strategies that people are using in many ways are not terribly atypical of what old guys like me used to do 
when we would be looking at different news sources when there were only three, believe it or not, there were only three when I was a young man, CBS, NBC, ABC, were the only three broadcast news. So what that means is the social media environment, the social media ecosystem is flattening. And there are fewer, there's going to be less one Twitter dominant. Remember, it was Facebook and then it was Twitter. It's flattening completely. And that's going to, I think, continue. Um, and people are going to start becoming more, more um, aware of the, 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 the values and the community and the users that are on uh, specific platforms and engage with those people more often than not. What does that mean? It's basically, if you took your own Twitter following and created a social media platform out of it, is what's happening. Is that community that represents your values and your belief system starts to represent and look like the people that you are communicating with. This is both good and bad for democracy. But I do believe it is a lot more like the public square used to be. One of the problems with social media that we have learned is that it is so big that the extreme voices start to gather and coalesce and organize in a way that they could not. There used to be a cranky person in this town, a cranky person in that town. Every town had its town crank. Well, now they're organizing as a bunch of cranks, and they've essentially taken over the Republican Party and are causing a lot of destruction and damage, certainly in the social media space. That's what's happening. When you start to isolate or segregate or create your own media bubbles outside of that, we are not only atomizing the media landscape and the ability to communicate news and have a common agenda or a common news uh, commitment. My news commitment, what I mean is a common belief system in what actually is news. Uh, remember, af after the big three networks, so when that world went away, and it went to cable news and something you could watch 100 cable news shows, we started to lose the ability to communicate as a society on what the priorities of the day were because the news was not, it's not just that the news wasn't telling us, it's that fewer and fewer people were watching the news. And then when you saw Fox News talking about completely different news than CNN, and CNN was talking about completely different news than MSNBC, you're not really, you're not really having a public dialogue. You're talking about completely different things. And then once One America News Networks popped up and Newsmax pops up and all these competitors, all of these cable news networks are talking literally about different news than everybody else is. And this, this, these bubbled, these silos create a very intractable problem for democracy because you can't agree on actually what news is. You can't agree on what the facts are. You can't agree on what the priority of the country is at any given day. In many ways, what's about to happen and what's happening in real time is the exacerbation of this effect, possibly exponentially, okay? Now, so when people are saying, well, if it was bad, then, Mike, is it going to get even worse? Well, I mean, possibly. I mean, it could be. Um, and it's not just, as Peg is saying, it's not just that the nation is divided. That it kind of made, sounds like there's Republicans here and Democrats here. It's not that it's divided in half, although in large part it is. It's fragmented into dozens of pieces right now, and those dozens are about to become hundreds of pieces. 
And our immediate reaction is this is a bad thing. This is not a good thing. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make an argument either way. I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. What I do know is we have had very fragmented media many times before in our past, and I talked about this. I think a little bit last time. I did a Mastodon post about this before. Benjamin Franklin himself, right? One of his first fortunes was made in purveying kind of real news, kind of not news, right? He ran kind of the one of the tabloids in Philadelphia in his day and age, but the more important thing is not what he was printing out, it's that he was competing with many, many dozens of other people with printing presses competing in the marketplace for news. And that was very common in the early days of the Republic. And in fact, if you look at the time of Lincoln, around, around the time of Cooper Union, when he was, when the Republican Party was just emerging from the ashes of the Whigs and the abolitionist movement was trying to figure out where its home was going to be. There were pro-abolitionist papers. There were pro-Republican papers. There were pro-Democrat papers. There were anti-abolitionist papers. There were anti-Republican papers. There were anti-Democrat papers. And so there were dozens, there were dozens in a very vibrant, very vibrant um, news um, system, ecosystem, and what we saw in these time periods was very high levels of engagement of people voting and people being civically engaged. Now, there's a big debate as to whether that's a sign of a healthy democracy or a sign of a weak democracy. Because we always think if more people are voting, that's a sign that democracy is good and it's healthy and more people are engaged. Technically, that can be true. But more often than not, what we have found is during very strange, tenuous, dangerous times in our country's history is when we have seen the highest turnout, the early formative years when it was very fragile, the time period just after the Civil War, this age of acrimony you've heard me talk about before, extremely volatile times, political assassinations, political violence, um, rigging ballot boxes, rigging elections, very, very high turnout, 85, 90% turnout, very, very high turnouts. Uh, you see this all over the world. The Carter Center is very involved in these countries, emerging democracies, we used to call them, where maybe for the first or, or, or first time or, or, or during re-election time after a, a dictator was deposed, you see very, very, very high turnout. Like almost everybody in the country votes because it's so damn important. And so there's a very good argument to be made that democracies are really in danger when their citizenry, citizenry are all actively engaged because they all know that the stakes are so high. And as you probably are aware, these midterms were towards the very high end historically of our turnout model or turnout projections. And I was saying that for a year, we're, gonna have, we're, we're entering a time of very extended high turnout because people realize that the threats to the Republic are existential. But again, we've been through this before. Now, so that's Franklin. William Randolph Hearst, we talked about this before. The Spanish-American War was created by fake news. We called fake news at the time yellow journalism, right? William Randolph Hearst trying to sell newspapers in a very competitive environment, a lot of voices coming out. Newspapers are the main medium of exchange of information. At that time, they are the dominant media source creates a story, lies, fake news, just makes it up and says, the Spanish attacked us. 
the public gets hopped up and demands war, demands a response. And that's when Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders respond and go take San Juan Hill in Puerto Rico. And we, we take over a bunch of Spanish territories and properties where we get um, Puerto Rico. That's how Puerto Rico becomes a territory. That's how we how the Philippines at the time became a, uh, a, a, a an asset of the United States. All of these, all of these dynamics in our history were driven by very similar circumstances to what we are seeing now. Okay, and I'm going on this diatribe because it's important to explain to people. Just as kind of a, I was, you know, trying to be a calming influence in 2020, 2022, and explain the political data. The, the way we look at data, try to, the way I try to look at data is to understand through a historical context and to recognize. We have been through very similar situations before. They're not exact. There's, there is a lot of innovation. There's a lot of new things happening. There's a lot of things we've got to speculate at. But it's not just once. We've been through this at least two times, probably more. We're not even talking about the buildup towards um, the Civil War. Um, we talked a little bit, obviously, about, about, about Lincoln. His biography is amazing. The emergence of the Republican Party, the media creation that it was, the home that it found as the Whigs collapsed was in large part, um, I think, a function of the feeling of the void, not just of the political vacuum that existed, but the media narrative that existed and the sentiment of the country as abolitionism started to take root and take hold in the North. And people were saying, we're not going to uh, allow this anymore, and it's worthy of going to war over. So Franklin, Lincoln, Age of Acrimony, William Randolph Hearst, We've been through very similar times before. That's my point of bringing this up. Now, it's been a long time. It's been probably a good, you know, since, since uh, you know, the Spanish-American War, largely because technology has allowed for the dramatic concentration of our focus on what the issues of the day were. Television, radio first changed that. Television changes it again. The Internet starts to add more democracy into democracy. And there have been some good parts of that. We've talked about the Arab Spring. Looking at China right now, folks, okay? As much as I have said and I have argued and I still believe this, I don't believe that Twitter is an, an essential, functional component of democracy. There's a lot of students of democracy that vehemently disagree with what I just said. A lot of them are saying it is a utility that the world of the world needs for freedom to take root. And they've got a lot of evidence on their side. I'm not saying I'm right on this. I'm just saying I'm still looking at the evidence to come to my own beliefs on this. But if you look at China right now, it doesn't look good for my position because all of these, all of these um, social media images of these 18 cities that have kind of blown up and are protesting the Chinese uprisings that are happening, um, in the largest response since anything we've seen since Tiananmen Square is a function of social media. And Twitter is largely taking these things and catapulting them around the world the way that only Twitter can. Mastodon can't do that right now. Post can't do that right now. Facebook can't do that right now. Twitter remains that essential infrastructure. And if it wasn't for Twitter right now, gotta be honest and upfront about this, I'm not too sure that we would have the exposure or the focus in the West on what is happening in China the way that we currently do. So there are some really good arguments that, that Twitter, at least at the moment, remains a central component 
of a free people fighting against tyrannical and authoritarian government. It doesn't mean that those are in conflict either. You can have a, a bad actor like an Elon Musk or somebody else who just comes in and wants to buy it and starts changing the nature, the flavor, the content, the rules of what free speech is, what the tone and tenor of the public square is, drive people out by either command or by intimidation, and you start to limit the ability of what it is that the world is trying, and when I say the world, my perception of what the world is trying to accomplish by allowing more democracy with a small d, more Democrats with a small d around the world. In other words, people were supporting democracy and democracy efforts like what we're seeing in China. Um, and there's obviously a lot of people who are have a competing vision of that uh, on Twitter right now. It's one of the reasons why I've cut back so much is um, some of what, what, what has been coming at me for the last 72 hours, I just don't want to deal with it. So I'm going to go find another place, find another community, and try to build a bigger, better network somewhere else. I firmly believe, I firmly believe that the more networks that there are, the better. Because I do believe that we will all find each other. It's just too easy in this world. You will find like-minded people. And as those communities get better, and as they get more effective, they will grow in number and they will attract more people of like mind. Okay? I think Twitter has seen its best days. I don't think it's going to go away. I think it will start to decline. And I think other media sources, social media sources, will begin to take its place. So that's what I see happening. Um, James, I think, was in the queue earlier. Are there any questions that I can answer or ask? Or have I talked enough yet about the topic, which is what does that mean for 2024? And I'm, I'm, let, me, let, me, let me speak about this a little bit as people kind of think about jumping into the queue here. What concerns me the most about the ability for Twitter to exist and remain with, let's say, a 30, 35% market share, that's literally the exact same number that Donald Trump got with the Republican base in the 2016 primaries. If a Republican is able to secure 35 or 40%, um, in, in some cases lower if it's a larger field. I don't think the field, by the way, is going to be that big in the Republican primary. But if you can command a 35% share of the vote in a four or five-way field, your chance of becoming the Republican nominee is pretty considerable. It's pretty high. It's why most of the oddsmakers had Ted Cruz being the victor in the 2016 primary. It's because he had the strongest floor level of support nationally of any candidate running before Donald Trump jumped in. What, John, what Donald Trump did was he literally used the media to overcome the old strengths that the, the Ted Cruz campaign had been building for years. And those strengths were largely by building and buying and, and co-opting the, um, the party delegates and the party establishment, as it were, in order to secure the primary victories required state by state. Ted Cruz did an awful lot of work, hired the right consultants to get to where he needed to go. More than anybody else, I think he was the one who was really washed over by what happened with Donald Trump, who basically said, that's a relic of last century. What you, what you have built and what you have invested in is a relic of politics from an era that no longer exists. 
And um, by utilizing Twitter, by focusing the media, by commanding the narrative day by day, minute by minute, again, breaking that 24-hour spin cycle down to a, um, a moment-by-moment tweet, he was able to, um, to, to secure that 35 40% of the populist base of the party and completely knock over all of the institutional strength that Cruz had built up. It's one of the reasons why Cruz stayed in as long as he did. Okay, there was, at the end, it was like, it was, it was Kasich who was, I think, hoping because he was the most anti-Trump guy that was still there. My guess is what John was trying to do was trying to occupy the lane of being the, the you know, never Trumper from the beginning. Um, Cruz probably had the best argument to be made, um, which is I've got the institutional support. And if anybody can turn this back at the convention, it's me. I think you would be right in that assessment. But I think by the time that they actually figured that out, by the time Rubio got out of the race, um, it was too late. The, 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 there's too many winner-take-all states. There was no way that the Never Trump lane was going to consolidate fast enough to stop um, Trump's rise to power. And and whether or not that can be replicated um in 2024, I, I, it won't be done the same way that it was done, but I think it's entirely possible to utilize um, the vehicle of of a Twitter combined with a truth social to command enough of the populist base to win um, Repu- enough Republican winner-take-all primaries to secure the nomination. So, James. Yeah, hi, Mike. Can you hear me? It's the first time I've ever used this. So, um, welcome. Oh, thanks. Um, so, I heard everything you said about 2016, but and and he definitely mastered the idea of using social media. And not that I see the Republican Party recovering, but you would think they would have a someone more uh, with that same sort of. Uh, ability to try to counteract him um but someone that will be more popular like i I don't think ted cruz i mean not a lot of people like ted cruz as far as i know even republicans seem to be a little turned off by him but um but someone that that would appeal more to the to the side of the party that you were talking about before um uh that dislike trump so much i mean it's not just democrats that uh, dislike Trump. I have Republicans that I know, friends that that, that they don't like him either. So, yeah, the question always becomes with Trump is is all those people that don't like him, will they ultimately fall in line? Because remember, as, as I just kind of articulated in twenty sixteen, you have to remember almost every Republican uh, in the first few weeks, first few months of the campaign did not like him. Not, not that they, they just you know were ignoring him. They actively did not like him. And as he started to build and consolidate and command attention and started to suck all the oxygen out of the room, what they did was something that no presidential campaign had ever done before, which is they used social media to make the referendum about him. Right. And what he understood more than any politician, I think, of our time was this idea that I've talked about a lot, which is negative partisanship, which is you don't have to vote for me 
but you really have to be driven and motivated to vote against our enemies. And what Donald Trump really understands is what the fear of the Republican base is. So let's let's not let's not forget. I mean, what his first six weeks was really articulated or illustrated, I should say, by who he was against. His first enemies were Mexicans, right? He comes down the golden escalator in Trump Tower and, and rails on the Mexicans because they're drug dealers, rapists, and I suppose some of them are very fine people. Then he starts going after, you know, POWs with McCain. Then he starts going after uh, Muslims, right? He starts calling for a Muslim ban. And what he starts to do is really identify the tribe, not as much by who they are, but by who they are not, by attacking who they're not. And that really is probably the most definitive component of political decision-making, what we call politicization, which is really what I spent my whole career focusing on is, is the politicization of different racial and ethnic groups and how they interact with, with one another once you start to find and identify your tribe. And what he what he was the first really to do was to was to was to organize. Um, we have a saying in politics. One of the first things you learn as a political operative, and that is, you win campaigns by addition, not subtraction. And politicians wire themselves to become, you know, those that that stereotypical politician of trying to be everything to everybody because they're trying to add. They're trying to add. They're trying to add. They're trying to add to their base. Donald Trump was the first politician in American history that proved that adage that was written in, in stone wrong. He literally, literally won by subtraction. You can win by subtraction in the Electoral College. The bigger the divide in the national popular vote, the bigger, the more unpopular he became with those other groups, the more popular he became with that smaller subset that happened to live in the right geographic areas to get them to 270 electoral votes. It, it was, I'm not saying it was orchestrated. I, I'm, what I'm saying is it was, it was brilliant in its own ugly, evil way. Okay. And, I, go ahead. I hear what you're saying. All right. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So Donald Trump, I've known Donald Trump forever. I'm from New Jersey. I've been listening to this guy for years, long before the rest of the country was hearing the stuff. The thing that, that frustrates me, because I'm just a regular old guy, uh, I don't have a platform, you know, like politicians, like from what I could tell, especially on the Republican side now, they're afraid. To, uh, the only way you deal with a bully is standing up to the bully. Nobody stands up to the bully from what I can see. I mean, it's like, you could you could be this is the one thing that I did like about the Lincoln project when when it came out and it caught my attention was that they stood up to the bully. And yeah, I mean look there there were those that tried, right? I remember Marco Rubio, remember that embarrassing yeah, you know, episode where he was Marco know, Rubio, Yeah, but Marco Rubio is I mean someone who has a spine, you know, that, that has morals, that stands up. People follow leaders, right? They, they listen to leaders, right? And I didn't see a leader like 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 Ted Cruz. To me, in my mind, in my way I see it, he's not a leader. He's not. Yeah. You know, Marco Rubio, I don't consider him a leader. He's not. Well, let me put it this way. Let me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain tactically because, I look, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah. The, but the Lincoln Project, what we did was something very unique. 
And what, what we did, mainly because we were not politicians ourselves. Right. We didn't have a board of directors that was saying, you can't say that. We didn't have a candidate we were working for, a donor, a major donor that was like, I'm not going to give you millions of dollars to say that. What we did was we went to $5 a month people and said, we're going to kick the shit out of this guy. And we're not going to lead. We're not going to show moral leadership. We're this guy wants to go to the gutter. We fucking built the gutter. We're political consultants. <laughs> political guys. Let's go. Let's roll. Let's jump in there. And that's where we fought him where he was at. We were the first people, mainly because we're political consultants, because we're not politicians, who said, you know what, to Michelle Obama, I respect you as the first lady, and I, I know you want to go high when he goes low, but the fight is where the enemy is at, not where you want them to be in politics. You have to meet the enemy where they're at. And that's what the Lincoln Project did. We're like, let's go to the gutter. Let, let's go. I mean, that, we, that's, where, that's literally where we ply our trade. We're not afraid to fight. And that was the first time that somebody could compete in that way. And we did it not just with, I think, quality content. We did it with the quantity, the amount that we were just drowning him with and then using it as an echo chamber to, uh, to, 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 to reiterate that message and contain what he was saying. Does that make sense? It does. Well, the Lincoln Project, yes, there weren't politicians. You weren't politicians. But part of it was this is where Donald Trump became very effective in my book. He didn't, part of him didn't give a shit. He was going to say what he wanted. Yeah. And partly I got that from the, the Lincoln Project. We don't get, we, we don't like this guy. This guy's a threat to us. We don't give a shit whose feelings we're going to hurt, right? Yeah. We're going to yeah. just come out and do this because it's the right thing to do. That's the person I want to see because that's the person that will be effective against counteracting him. Yeah. They got to have a partially don't give a shit attitude, but have morals and have standards, you know, I don't yeah, see that. And look, I mean, I, I guess I, I hear what you're saying, and I, honestly, I am listening to it in a different way. I never thought we were leaders. I, 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 never, I never thought, and I don't think anybody else did either. We, never, we didn't view ourselves as leaders. We just viewed ourselves as, as a bunch of, uh, you know, street fighters. Yeah, I let's, get it. You, let's you get know. out there and fight. Like that, and, that's, and that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to fight. We, let's, let's fight. And, and we'll build our army and you build your army and let's, let's go. And, and, you know, I, I mean, um, I, I'm not too sure that, 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 that the American people are looking for character and leadership the way that we used to. No. And I, 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 um, I lament that fact. Because I, I think a people need to have some sort of common virtue that they look towards. I just happen to think we're at a time and an age where the common virtue in American politics now is just winning. And that's that's not that's not sustainable for a people to to to, to continue on. I, I mean I'm I'm concerned about that. I don't yeah. know. What do you think? Uh, no, I think that makes sense to me. And also too, the part you were talking about before about the uh the amount of people that are voting. Yeah, we're scared to death. We're voting. We want to make sure that, you know, democracy is still here. I, I, and, I, and I'm a history buff. And yes, you see that activity during t um, tumultuous times. Um, I don't know if you've listened. It's kind of funny. Uh, 
it's kind of along uh, the lines of here. So I've been listening to the the, the Rachel Maddow. Uh, uh, she has a podcast that she's been doing, talking yeah, about the times heard, prior to the Second World War. What's I haven't that? heard it, but it's it's come out to rave reviews and it's kind of blowing up. You need um, to listen to it. Yeah, it, it's the parallels leading up to the Second World War and how the Nazis were. Um, getting involved with uh, politicians and influencing senators and congressmen and the stuff that they were saying to keep us out of the war to help uh, Germany. You know, Germany was basically influencing them to keep us out of the war. You got to listen to it. It just, uh, it makes, uh, I go, holy cow. You know, they talk about Huey Long and all that. And, yeah. Uh, the populism. Populism, yeah. Yeah. Look, we've had those strains before. We've had the Huey Longs before. We've had... Yeah. We've had Senator McCarthy's before. We, they've just never risen to the Oval Office, thank God. Right. Um, but yeah, they, these, like I said, these, these history echoes. I mean, it's 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 there. The good news about that, in my mind, is if you're a student of history, um, you, you're able to identify it and, and suss it out. Look, we're never going to get rid of all of these elements. No. Anti-Semitism will always be with us. Racism will always be with us. Authoritarian movements will always be with us. The problem is, can we maintain a civic and cultural value as a people in common to agree that that's not acceptable enough to, to prevent it from permeating to the levels where it, it's gotten. And the, the good news is, like I said, I feel better after these midterms than I did after, after yeah. the 2020 race, because what we're seeing is different groups finally saying, you know what, uh, we're, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And that that's to me means there's kind of a purge that is taking place in our body politic, which is very sick, which is saying, you know what, I'm not, this, this, we can't, this can't last. This, as much as I may not like the Democrats, as much as I may not like these policies, I like my country enough mm -hmm. to say, uh, I want to hold on to it. And it's unfortunate that it's gotten to that point, but, but, you know, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I agree with you. In yeah. fact, I felt very good after the midterms too, um, because it made me, uh, realize that because I I've been very worried about uh, like the population are just cows and they seem to follow and are easily influenced by charlatan kind of stuff and the midterms disproved that to me it said no people are looking and saying no I see through your crap right and you are a threat to my way of life I'm never going to let you get into office and they go out and they vote that's that's the way I read it. Yeah, James, I appreciate you joining the show. I, I'm not sure if this is your first time, but um, it appreciate is. It. Love your voice. Um, make sure that you're joining our our our, our, our discussions regularly because um, I appreciate your perspective. And thanks for asking the question. No problem, Mike. Thank you. All right, you bet. We're gonna go to Andrew. Andrew, unmute for me, brother. Key, how are you, Mike? Hey, I got before we get started. Before I hear your question, um, a lot of people have asked if you have a social media handle that you're willing to share because a lot of people were looking for you because they appreciate your question. So I, I would take that as a compliment. But you know, oh, okay, Jeez. You want to share, just, put it put it in the chat or, or, or just will. Up, whatever you want to do. I'm just I'm just some regular I'm just some regular Joe from down under. Um, so thanks, but um. So my question is around, do you think it's a trap for Biden to run in 24? Is there a trap for him if Trump doesn't win the Republican nomination 
and he puts his hand up because everyone sort of cleared the way for him. Mr. Newsom has cleared the way. Is this a is this a missing opportunity for the Democratic Party for renewal or not? Um, I, look, I think you're asking a couple of different great questions, right? One is, are they missing an opportunity? And two, is this a trap? So let me kind of tell yep. you, how I'm reading the tea leaves because I think we're all seeing the polling data now that shows like DeSantis beats Biden by four or five points, but mm-hmm. Biden Trump by seven or eight points. Right. Um, so first thing I'm going to say, this is the main qualifiers. Don't count Trump out. Okay. I know he's on the ropes and, and I really think. I really think that if the Democratic Party moves offensively on the Republican Party at this point in time, um, they could literally vanquish a modern party in a way we have not seen since since the Whigs went away. And let me spend a little bit of time on this. Normally, um, as a political professional, when your opponent is in trouble, you step back and you have the discipline to say, let them do the damage to themselves. I think we're in a very unique spot here. The reason why is this. The conflict within the Republican Party is not bilateral. It's multilateral. There are now three definitive wings in the Republican Party, and I believe that they're irreconcilable. And they are doing a good job right now of fighting internally. But uh, as opposed to, um, you know, in a bilateral fight, if you help one side as the common enemy, you usually bring that unity back together in your opposition and your enemies, and they will stop fighting amongst themselves and realize, okay, let's go fight the bad guy because they're messing with our business. That's why you step away. In a multilateral fight, it's very different. The power vacuum is very different. And so if, if Democrats started to mess with their coalition a little bit, um, I think it actually exacerbates the tension and it actually speeds up the division that could lead to its collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I look, you're seeing a lot of this, like Marjorie Taylor Greene cutting her deal with Kevin McCarthy and, and you're seeing a lot of the right wing, you know, Trump nut guys going, what are you, what are you doing? Like, she's a traitor now when Marjorie Taylor Greene becomes a traitor, you know, <laughs> know that there's some real serious problems in this coalition. Like it's not, they don't have the, the, the traditional political sophistication to build coalition and build compromise and build relationships and coalitions by what we would call screwing our base in, in, in political parlance. That's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. that's a required characteristic to build the coalition is you have to be able to tell your base, you're not going to not only not going to get what you want, you're going to get kind of screwed here, but it's going to give us more leverage when we go forward to get the next thing that we're trying to accomplish. And that's how you build consensus. That's that is a that is a, a virtual impossibility in the Republican coalition right now. And that's why McCarthy's in so much trouble. Incidentally, I mean, there's a lot of people prognosticating as to whether or not he's going to be able to put the votes together. My guess is we're getting so close. I think he probably I think it's a coin toss. I, I think he probably does. But as I've said before, I don't think he lasts long as speaker. I don't see I think as soon as he has to actually make decisions. That's when the tension, that's when the coalition is going to blow up. Right now, it's all just trying to manage expectations and promising things and giving people stuff and trying to keep Trump on board, not piss off DeSantis and keep the, you know, the the establishment wing going. As hard as that is right now for Kevin to be doing, it's exponentially easier 
than what he is going to face if he becomes speaker in 30 some odd days. It's going to be a, an absolute nightmare. So even if he becomes speaker, and he may not, but if he does, I think it's going to become a very, it will be a very short lived speakership. And I wouldn't be surprised, as I've said before, that we may see three or four speakers before uh, the 2024 presidential election cycle. All of this is very bad news for the Republicans, by the way, which gets, me to, which gets me to your Biden question, okay? I, I do believe that there are some real problems that Biden is going to face. I think that the Hunter Biden stuff should not be dismissed. I think it's very real. Correct. I think as, as much as it's not real, it can be made to be real for, for TV purposes. And the Republicans have learned from the Democrats in the January 6th committee. This is not going to be just a bunch of people with gavels. It's going to be a TV production in a way that we have never seen before with all Spot sorts on. of saga and drama and video footage. And they're going to try and bring them up and make them testify and people around them. And you're going to have the right wing echo chamber just driving, driving, driving this messaging. And I think it could be very very damaging um, to, to Joe Biden. Now, having said that, let me also say this as a political professional. We do, a, sorry about the long Mike Madrid wind up here, but <laughs> we, do, we do a lot of prognostication as political consultants um, about different voter subgroups and the outcomes of races. When the truth of the matter is most political campaigns, most races are decided by very, very few votes amongst very, very few undecideds in very, very few counties, in very, very few states, in very, very few precincts. So the actual outcomes of what happened with Joe Biden was 30,000 votes, right, across three different states. The race before that was 70,000 votes that Donald Trump got over Hillary Clinton across five or six states. These marginal differences are really not um, 95 percent of what is happening in a campaign. And don't get me wrong, campaigns matter, but 95 percent of what happens in campaigns does not. Most of the media narrative that you hear does not move voters. And I don't believe the differential between a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis or a Nikki Haley or a Marco Rubio or a Chris Christie or a Larry Hogan, the differential on the vote outcomes between what they would get and Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or any, you pick them, is not yep. that different. It's just not. The actual outcomes of the races could be a dead Democrat versus a dead Republican, and that the outcomes would look eerily similar to any any live Republican and any live Democrat. People are just that partisanized when it comes to elections. And there are far too many people in campaigns and definitely in the media who have never mm -hmm. run campaigns that think that a candidate's personality or I'd like to have a beer with that guy or they're a Midwesterner and they understand they're, they're blue collar. That is complete horse shit. It's complete crap. It's garbage. That is not the way voter psychology works. And where it does, it is so de minimis that it's not determining the outcome of races. That's just data. 
There's no other explanation for why we have had the trend line of these presidential races that we can look at with the accuracy, frankly, that we've had for 40 years, right? There's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, teeth grinding and grinching about polling guys, all of the quality polling in the 2020 midterm, 2022 midterms were dead on accurate. The New York times Siena poll was within a half a percentage point of calling the outcomes of these races. There's most of the, there was the right wing polls that were flooded the garbage polls. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the credible blue chip players, right? They were all basically saying this is going to come down to one vote in the Senate. You know what? It came down to one vote in the Senate. Most of the polling was saying the margin here is going to be between the single digits and the mid-teens with the Republican majority. And you know what? It came down to the single digits. It just wasn't off that much. And it, it, it was all within the margin of error. And that's not just 2022. The same thing in 2020, the same thing in 2016. We forget this, right? This is where we start pulling their hair out and going, oh my God, the polling was wrong. And, you know, Hillary you know, was gonna, supposed to win. Hillary did win the, the popular vote. That's what the polling was saying. And if you look at the state by states, it was basically pretty damn accurate. Like most of this stuff is pretty baked in overwhelmingly. I'm not saying all of it, but enough of it to give us a very good understanding of what is happening. So I don't know if that, mm. all, all, of that, all of that's to say, I think Biden, his hand was strengthened considerably. And I said this before the race with the Republicans taking a slim majority. You, you've heard this, Andrew, because you've listened to me on these podcasts before, but yep. anybody, anybody can listen to the last four or five podcasts I did before the election. This is exactly what I was saying is the Republicans are going to win a majority in the House. They're not in the Senate. That's the best possible situation for Joe Biden's reelection that anything the Democrats can do. And I, I think I, that I absolutely still believe that. That is absolutely the case. Could somebody do better? Sure. Conceivably, yes. Is it worth the variable of not knowing what that candidate's weaknesses are, given that Biden is probably going to have a better hand, at least from whatever we can predict from here going forward? Look, the country... The wrong track is sitting in at 75%. Inflation was at a 40-year high. Biden's approval ratings were, were somewhere near Truman's first presidency. This dude was not in a good position for an incumbent. This party was heading into a freaking disaster, right? And they come out and it's like, hey, did pretty damn good. My, my guess is, my guess, and, and nobody knows, but my guess is, He's probably going to be playing a better hand in 18 months than he was playing a month ago. So if that's the situation, shit, put your money on Biden. Like just all in. Push him in and, 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 and rely on the math, the data, the historical trend line, and the narrative against the crazies, which are about to come out of the clown car in Congress starting <laughs> in the middle of January. Like it's coming, right? That's, that, that's a good bet. And that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. At the 30,000 foot level, that's what I see happening. Is some crazy shit going to happen in Ukraine? Guaranteed. Is China going to get more unstable? Yeah, probably. Do they move on Taiwan? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, those are variables that you can't account for. But the fundamentals of the race, which we keep going back to, right? That's what I keep always talking about on the show as a political operative. you got to look at the fundamentals. The fu it's very, very freaking hard to beat an incumbent president. It's really, really hard. 
Like when we beat Trump, we barely beat the guy. I mean, the, the, the guy is responsible for a pandemic that killed, you know, millions of Americans. He drove the economy into the ground. And, he, oh, by the way, he's a white supremacist, racist, crazy-ass nut. And we barely beat him. We beat him by 30,000. Like, it's really hard. It's really yeah. hard to beat an incumbent. So I, I, you, if you look at the fundamentals that way, sorry to keep going on, Andrew, but the, the, if you no, no, at, that's good. I like it. If you look at the fundamentals, that's the way you need to look at an incumbent presidency. And he's in a much uh, better position than anybody else being a wild card would know. So there's this natural, like, you know, should we get rid of Kamala? Should we, you know, go with a younger okay. person? Yeah. The, the truth of the matter is the fundamentals actually now look pretty damn good for this guy. And I, my guess is what they will get better, yeah. even marginally. I think they get better in the next 18 months. What about his health? Is that the only concern you have then? Like I said, man, you look at look at Donald Trump's health. The guy's clearly not mentally okay. He's still got eight, 95% of the base. And, and look, this may offend some Democrats. The Democrats will do the same damn thing. You're going to do the same thing. He's, Joe Biden's an old man. He's cognitively yeah. a little bit slow. I'm not saying he doesn't know what's going on. I think he's better than the media portrays him to be. But there's no Democrats that are going, you know what? I think I'll vote for Donald Trump this time because Joe Biden's a little bit slow. Like, that's not happening. That's not a real no, thing. No, no. What about if he falls off the perch? Well, that what the, you can't account for that, right? I mean, it could. Yeah. I mean, shit could happen. Yeah, he's old. The dude's old. I mean, he'll be what he'll be he, how old is he he just had a birthday right he's like 80 how old somebody jump yeah. in the chat yeah. how old is joe biden something, he's, something, something, something. he's I mean, old you know, right and he go for 80, 82 82 at re-election he's going to work till 86 i mean uh, oh my god yeah and it's stretching stretching it pretty long you know come on man and in those years you start to exponentially decline like yeah it, it's not it's it's it's, it's uh, sorry Making people that—that's—I mean—that's—that's not—that's—that's that's a concern. It's a concern, but I—I I, like I said when I was joke, I, I was—I was only half joking about saying any dead Republican could get the same amount of votes as any live Republican in a presidential contest. We're just that dug in. We, we just are, and 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 again, I was point. There's a whole lot of evidence to point in that direction, but. You have to remember, most Republicans did not vote for, for Donald Trump in 2016. It's not that people somehow had a revelation that he became a great, great character or, or a great American. It's that he was the Republican that was going to beat the Democrats. That's all they gave a shit about. Yeah, and that's right. all the Democrats care. Look, Joe Biden was not the popular choice in, in, the, in, the, in the Democratic primary in 2020. The only characteristic that he beat every other Democrat Win. on, the only Winnable. one. Only one, and that was people believe that he could beat Donald Trump. Correct. And so the Democrats voted for that. They're like, I don't know, you know, I don't agree with him on, on all this stuff. And yeah, he did bad stuff back in the 70s and 80s and policing stuff. And he, I don't know where he's at on abortion or whatever, but he, I think he can beat Donald Trump. And at that point, that is all that mattered to the majority of Democratic voters. That's what got him the nomination. That's why he won. And he did. And that, that is where the average Democrat is. That's where the average Republican is. Not by small numbers. I'm talking about by big numbers. That's how people feel. Is the, when, when the threat of the other party is existential to the republic, you don't see your candidate's weaknesses. Look at Herschel Walker. Look, look, look what Republicans are willing to overlook on Herschel Walker. 
My God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, and that's the so, way. That's the way political. That's the way voter psychology works. So if if you extend that logic, then then DeSantis would be the nominee because he's the only one that they perceive can beat Biden, right? Is that your is that, is that your I think, way I think leading Trump to that? I think Trump supporters believe that Donald Trump can beat anybody. They think he won. They think he did beat Biden. Yeah, I know. I know. You can't. You can't reason with those lunatics, right? Yeah. The, the people that run the show. Yeah, that, that's why. Look, that's why the establishment is trying to get to DeSantis as quickly as they can, because they know Trump can't win. At least they believe that he can't win, and so they are trying to get off of Trump and to DeSantis as quickly as possible. The problem is they're going to run headlong into this base that they have been feeding this bullshit for for years, and they're not buying it. That's the that's the real problem that the Republican Party has is Donald Trump is not going to go quietly into the good night. He's not. This dude is not going to just quietly go away. He's doing everything he can to destroy his chances at winning the nomination. But if he holds on to 10, 12, 15 percent for dear life to be relevant, because and again, I've said this before. I will say it again. And I, I believe this. I believe this to my core. If Donald Trump has to hold on to 10 to 15% of Republicans to drive the Republican Party into the ground to demonstrate that they can't win without him, he will do it. He will do it. Because relevancy, irrelevancy, is a fate worse Mm. than death to a man like Donald Trump. So he will have no qualms about saying, if it ain't going to be me, it ain't going to be anybody. What happens to Donald Trump if, if, if there's a new Republican president? Like Donald Trump will become a pariah. The Republican Party will pretend like he was never really existed. Suddenly, all of these people that <laughs> voted for him and have MAGA flags waving, they'll all say they'll all deny they ever voted for him. That's right. That, that will happen. Right. He that knows that. He knows, dude knows that. Like, he can't have that. Am I making sense? Yeah, it's going to, uh, I think 20, the next year is going to be so interesting. I, I, I can't wait. I'm excited. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a street fight. And like I said, I normally normally I advise staying out of this. Like, let the, don't interfere with the enemy while they're in the process of destroying themselves. Okay. I think the Democrats have to be smart and they have got to go in there and they've got to wedge, wedge, wedge this coalition because it's not unlike the, the democratic party in the, in, in, you know, with, with, with George Wallace. So it's uh, so, so it's unity versus chaos, huh? That's the, that's where it's going. Yeah. It's just the, the, right. the, the coalition in the Republican party is untenable now. It, it's yep. literally like the Dixiecrats. You know, you were never going to have Hubert Humphrey and George Wallace did not belong in the same party. And, and and that's what that's what they're running into is this realization that the, the Mitt Romneys of the world they're not there's not they're not big they're not we as never Trumpers we we've never been a big part of the of the of the party's you know coalition but we are incredibly necessary if we're five to seven percent that's the Bannon line I've been talking about for two years mm, can't yep. win without us we have veto power. Like, and if you're going to go crazy, we'll, we'll give the, we'll give the speaker gavel to Nancy Pelosi. We'll give yep. the old office to Joe Biden. We, we will do that. And that, that is the veto power that the never Trumpers 
have had and have demonstrated since 2018. We, we gave, you look at Orange County voters, they gave the speakership to Nancy Pelosi. They gave the White Correct. House to Joe Biden in 2020. And they, you know, they, they, they basically um, limited the damage of what the Republicans were supposed to do in 2022. That's all Republican vote. And that's, that is, that we, we're like, we've got a seat at the UN. We're a small, weak country, but we've got a nuclear bomb. It's like, you can't, you can't win without us. And, and, and it's untenable. Like we're not Democrats. We're not going to go with, we're not going to re-register as Democrats. We are a part of the old Republican party, but we'll be damned if we're going to allow the crazy to take over. And that's, that, that is where the Democrats have really, really got to get smart and hit the gas and just drive, 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 drive a wedge into that coalition and split it apart. And if they do that, I really do believe that you will see a new party emerge. Something will emerge from the ashes because the coalition is truly untenable. It's untenable now. Wow. Wow. That happens. That's, that's huge. If that happens, that's a big one. Yeah. Andrew, right, thanks Mark. Yeah. Put your, put your Twitter handle or something in the room chat. People want to follow you. Uh, nine, eight, 9 8 of 10. I can't say Lincoln. Right, uh, show me Lincoln. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Let me see. Let me see. There he is. All right, guys. M. You're up. You're on stage. There you are. Okay, there we go. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Did you start at 8 or did you start at 8.30 my time? I started at 8 and it was supposed to be at 8.30 and I apologize <laughs> for everybody who came on late. I'm supposed to. <laughs> let me just reiterate because I know we had a lot of new people join on at the 8.30 hour, which is the time that I had been telling everybody. I jumped on a half an hour earlier because I have this habit of thinking it's at 5 o'clock my time. <laughs> it's supposed to be 5.30. My apologies. We did get started early and there were so many people and we just, we just jumped on. So apologize. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I have a super basic question. Very, okay. very basic question. You oh, talked a lot you. about the fundamentals of a race. I'm yeah. not a political person or wasn't until recently. What yeah. are the fundamentals? What does that mean? Well, I mean, it, it, when, when I talk about the fundamentals of a race, what I'm looking at is really the data driven, the evidence based, um, um, frame of what is going to determine the winner of a race. And so when we talk about fundamentals, it's kind of like the, the blocking and tackling of football. And if for me, the most uh, important fundamental is the historic trend line. Now, the funny thing about history is it's only history and it's only a trend line until it's not. It's like an average in baseball, right? It's you can have a batting average, but it's not going to necessarily tell you how that person is going to do at that next at bat. It should give you a pretty good framework over the long haul, but that historic trend line really does inform a lot. Okay. And in fact, we just had what we would call an anomalous, anomalous election with these midterms. The truth of the matter is the fundamentals told us that the Republicans would win. They were the party out of power. And the party out of power wins nine times out of 10, 95, 99 times out of 100. And that is what happened. The margins weren't as big as we thought. And that'll take us to some other fundamentals. But the first one that I'm looking at is somebody who runs campaigns. When I say things like 
the party out of power is likely going to win, right? That's a, that's a, 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 a historic trend line fundamental. When I say it's incredibly difficult to beat an incumbent president like I just did, history tells us it's very, very hard regardless of the economics, regardless of foreign policy crisis, regardless of the domestic situation that's going on, that's a historic trend line. That's a, that's a fundamental. If you're running a campaign against those and you're running against fundamentals, it just gets really, really difficult. There's a lot of other metrics that we can go through, but um, um, the three main ones that we look at for the midterm that we just got done with, the generic ballot, right? We ask voters, how are you voting? You're voting for the Democrats or voting for the Republicans. That's a fundamental. We look at the presidential approval ratings, uh, which is, you know, um, I, I, and I, I believe that, that both the generic ballot and the presidential approval ratings are less of indicators than they used to be, but they're still very important. Um, you know, if, if the president's job approval rating is higher, the party does better. If they're lower, he does worse. We saw this really dramatic increase in support for Biden as the race closed. In hindsight, that was telling us that people were coming home and were going to vote uh, for the, 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 the party in power, if not for Joe Biden. And then there's a fundamental that I believe in when I'm looking at a race that is different than I think what most prognosticators or most political professionals look at. Uh, and that is the, the party that is viewed as the most extreme mm -hmm. does the worst. And I, I actually did a, a, a different podcast. I was on the Latino Vote podcast with a really brilliant researcher, a guy named Carlos Odio with Equis Research. He's a good Democrat. We, 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 we agree on, on the data he's pulled together. We disagree on the analysis. He, like so many other, you hear this a lot, the party out of power, I just said it, the party out of power tends to lose. Um, the reason why the party tends out to win. Party out of power tends to win? The party out of power tends to win. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Did I say that wrong? Yeah, the party that is out of power tends to win. And what we used to refer to these as was change elections for about 20 years. This dynamic started in 1994, started when I was an undergraduate at, at Georgetown in college. 1994 was the first time in 40 years that the Republicans won uh, the House of Representatives. Before then, there was a 40-year run of Democrats controlling the House. That's unheard of now. And, and that was a big year of change in 1994. And then what happens is we start looking at all these midterms and the party out of power starts winning. And we keep saying, oh, it's a change election. It's a change election. It's a change election. And while that's technically true, we have enough data now to look at it and say, actually, the party that was viewed as the most extreme is the party that is rejected at the polls. It sounds like a semantic difference, but it's actually a very significant difference. And that's what you saw in 2022, just this last uh, couple Tuesdays ago. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is the anomalous part was that even though the Republicans had no control over any branch of, of Congress or the executive branch, they were still, by a plus seven, viewed as the more extreme party. Tells you how batshit crazy the Republican Party is. <laughs> that, but it's important because what happened there was the size of what should have happened with a historic fundamental was dramatically limited because another fundamental was competing with that and seemed to be at least somewhat dominant or at least strong enough to mitigate that. I don't know if that makes sense or not. 
It does. Can, would you mind giving an example of a fundamental, though, in like a smaller race? Because those two, like I've listened to enough of your teaching and different things to understand the, the big one, like the party out of power usually wins. But what about in a smaller race, like a non-president example of a fundamental in that? Uh, well, the, the fundamentals in each race are going to get different depending on what they are. So if I was if we're talking about a school board race, for example, none of this applies. Right. But if we're talking about like a congressional race mm -hmm. and I'm trying to determine whether or not my member of Congress is going to win, the first thing I'm going to look at is how competitive is the race, how close in terms of voter registration is this is is this seat. Anything that is um, what we call a plus five uh, R or D. In other words, if Republican mm -hmm. registration is five or more points or Republican one party is, is within five or less. That's, that's generally a competitive seat, okay? By the way, that has changed. That has shrunk, too. It was not uncommon when I was a kid doing, doing races, congressional races in the 90, late 90s, where we, as Republicans, we could go pick off a D plus 12 seat, and it wasn't, it wasn't that surprising. Now, that's, that, 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 that doesn't happen. The, the, the country is too partisanized. It's too locked down. But it was not uncommon in the 90s for, for, for me to go out and, and win a race, that was a Democrat plus 10 plus 12 registration advantage. Um, like I said, now that fundamental has changed to about a plus five. But the, when, I, when I'm saying the fundamental, it's, it's who has a partisan advantage, partisan registration advantage. So that's the first thing you've got to look at, right? Mm -hmm. And the second thing you've got to look at is um, uh, the, 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 the generic ballot and then the party in power's approval rating. That, that that right there is going to tell you 80% of what you want to know. There are exceptions, okay? But they are, they tend to be very egregious. So, for example, Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert's race was really, really close. Boebert, by the way, um, made herself a national spectacle. And mm -hmm. and, her, and that's, that's why you have this rarity of people rejecting her and that type of politics. If you've got a member of Congress who, um, you know, is uh, corruption charges or is brought up, goes, you know, is, is brought up on certain, certain, you know, criminal activity, those change the fundamentals, but they're usually pretty egregious. Take a look at the cast of characters we had in this last one. Herschel Walker, right? All of the shit that guy did, he's still within that, that same basic party registration range. Incidentally, my my I, I think I think Warnock wins by by a bigger margin than the polls are saying. I mean, there's Warnock is like at a plus two, plus three. I think I think Warnock wins closer, you know, to a seven, eight. Oh, I hope so. Um, and, and 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 why? Again, I think it's it's the fundamentals of the trajectory of where Georgia is going. Georgia has been moving in that direction for some time, and and Herschel Walker is bad enough of a candidate to bleed two or three points of Republicans and or conservative leading independents to vote for the Democrat. Okay. So there are, there are, there, there are those, those examples, but that's the, the basic frame of a campaign is 95% baked in like 95%. Okay. All the battle and all the money and all the narrative and all the infrastructure we build and the grassroots and the communications and the donors and all the polling and the analytics work, all of that really is focused on trying to discern how we're going to get that two to three 
points of voters to move one way or the other. And if, if your if the fundamentals of your race, if the party registration doesn't allow for more than a two or three point swing, we don't, we don't even try to win it. We don't even, we don't even contest it. I'll, I'll, again, I'll share some more information with you guys on this Latino vote. Carlos Odio is a researcher in Florida. The, the Democrats spent, get this, this is freaking shocking. The Democrats spent 2.3% of what they spent in 2020 in 2022. They completely abandoned Florida. They that was my next question, actually. Yes, they, go ahead. They complete, the Democrats completely ditched Florida. Why? The fundamentals have been saying that is a Republican state. Florida is not a swing state. Okay, it's not. It is. It has not been a swing state for a while. A long while, by the way. Sure, there's an anomalous times where every once in a while a Democrat will either come really close or even maybe pick it off. But there are anomalies. If you look at the trend line, Florida's been a Republican state for a long time. And it's still moving in that direction. The Democrats looked at the fundamentals and are like, we're not going to win that seat. We're not going to invest in Val Demings. We're not going to blow 30, 40, 50, 60 million bucks trying to you know, pretend like this is a swing state because it's not. It's not. Now, they probably should have spent more in Wisconsin, but that's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You're always going to have, have those rearview mirror moments, but that's the fundamentals. And, the, and, and how do I know that? You look at the trend line of where Florida's been going. It's why late in the Lincoln Project, I shifted all my money out of North Carolina and I moved it into Georgia. Why? The trend line was showing Georgia moving. It wasn't just the late poll breaks. It wasn't just the tightness of the race. Georgia has been moving away from the Republican Party for about six cycles. Is that because the population is changing? Yes. Like, yeah. But it's the demographics that are changing or the people who live there are changing their minds? No, I mean, no. I believe very, very, very strongly in the former. Now, and, and you know, people... The different people are moving there. Yeah, I believe I believe that demographics is destiny. I'm one of the very few people that will still say that. I just say if you don't understand that, it's because you're looking at the wrong demographics. <laughs> you don't you just don't understand demography. I mean, yes, that's what's happening in the in the southern states and in the, in the sunbelt states. Is what's happening is you're seeing an increase in the number of college educated white voters, Republicans. In places like Gwinnett and DeKalb County, look at the economy there. It's it's the headquarters for CNN. It's the headquarters for Coca Cola. These are not blue collar jobs. There's a financial center in Atlanta. Like Atlanta is not. It's not. It's not. It's not Mississippi. It, it's, it hasn't been. A, it hasn't been a southern state as we. Vanity Fair wrote a great piece on this. I talked to Chris Smith. Take a look at it. It's on my Mastodon. I'll, I'll put it in the room chat. Or maybe my moderator can kind of stick it up if you can put a link in there. Great Vanity Fair article. I spent a long time with a reporter from Vanity Fair saying, you know, Georgia is like America only more so because of the nature of the diversity of the suburban, upwardly mobile uh, communities surrounding Atlanta. It, George, sorry to geek out on this a little bit, but I'm going to geek out a little bit. Georgia has the most, the, the, Georgia has the most diverse suburbs in America. You go to the suburbs in, 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 in Gwinnett and DeKalb and the Collard counties around the Atlanta core, and you can have on the same block college-educated cul-de-sac of Asian Pacific Islanders, Latinos, 
African-Americans, white people, all working in, in college-educated new economy jobs. That's, that, is, that, is, um, that is an emergent part of the demography of the southern states. Not all, the Sunbelt states. There's the link to the Vanity Fair article. Take a look at that and you've got a chance. It's, the, it's what I called the new Southern strategy on the Lincoln Project. It's why I was telling people publicly, Arizona's in play. Biden can win Arizona. It's why we invested it huge early. Nobody was in Arizona earlier than I was. And it's why I was saying Georgia's going to come into play too and it'll come into play late. The key was could North Carolina be put into play? And, and I've got, I know I've got some North Carolinians here in the crowd, and I'm sorry I'm getting worked up about, about nerdy, nerdy stuff like this, but this is what I do. I, I believe fundamentally that if you understand demographics, you can be very good at predicting the outcome of political campaigns. If you understand demography, but and again, that's what I do, so of course I'm biased in that direction. But that if you understand demographics, you understand politics. You understand why people politicize and develop the political opinions that they do. Why are Catholics different than Protestants? Why are Mexican Americans different than Cubans? Why, you know, why are the Great Lakes states different than the North, the, the New England states? They've got white non-college educated voters. Why are they so different? Why, why did the progressive movement start in Wisconsin, and why is it now behaving? Why, why is it also electing Ross Johnson? Like those are the questions I, I want to know. Right. And, and when you understand that, you can understand how to use the levers to push these things into play. But in, in an amalgam, it also gives you a trend line that is America that helps you understand what the fundamentals of races are. Does that make sense? It does. But if so, if 95 percent of the race is already baked in before you even started, like before no. anybody spent money or anything, can political parties shape the fundamentals? Because, for example, I was listening to another podcast that mm -hmm. said that one of the things about here in Florida is that we have like the worst Democratic Party organization. They're like terrible. And we have a fantastic, apparently Republican Party as like the Florida Republican Party. If the Democratic Party were to invest over the next 10, 15 years, can they shape that? Can they change the fundamentals? Are we just baked in as this is who we are and it's not going to change? That's a great question. Um, let me say this. Please give me hope for Florida, Mike. Come on now. Florida is a screwed up state. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, Florida, Florida is just, it, it doesn't make sense. It just, it's a weird outlier and it's just, I want to like Florida. I, I, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's like, but, but I mean, look at Florida. It's like the Hispanics there, they're not really Hispanics. They're not, they don't, they're Cubans and they're Puerto, they're, they're, they're not, they're Venezuelan. They're not reflective of the rest of the electorate. Mm -hmm. It's also, look, it's also kind of the, I'm sorry. Florida, and this is why Rick, Rick, so Rick Wilson, and Rick and I would go back and forth on this a lot in the Lincoln Project when we're making decisions. I think we spent $15 million in Florida. And I think it was, this is in 2020. And I think it was the right move. Like if, of all the regrets that I have, I, 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 I worry about that money that we spent there. And I keep going, man, could I have put North Carolina in play? Could I, could I, could I have done more 
in, in especially North Carolina? Could I, could I open the gap more in Wisconsin? Could I open the gap in Pennsylvania? Because those are the decisions that we're making. We spent $15 million in Florida. I'm going to tell you the main reason why. The main reason why is if a Democrat wins Florida, there's virtually no roadmap for a Republican to win the, the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like less than 2%. It's not going to happen. So it's worth the investment to kind of go in and, and try and pick it up. But Florida, I mean, I think what you saw on, on Tuesday night is who Florida is. Ugh. That's who Florida is. And it's going to be that way for a, a good long time, generationally, generationally. And and I, I just don't see, um, look, look, and I, and I know this isn't going to go over well, but as a political professional, the Democrats did the right thing by pulling their money out of there. They're not going to win. You're right. And that doesn't mean you don't start and rebuild and do all those things, but it takes a generation to get there. It's like saying the Republicans coming into California. Oh. Should the Republicans go into California? No. No. <laughs> no, don't waste your money. Like, it's not going to happen. It, it will take incremental time and a lot of demographic shifts to get there. But but Florida is moving more into that space, into that direction. The truth is, I haven't looked at Florida that much because the trend line, the fundamentals have been moving so Republican. It's It has not been a swing state for a long time. So if I were advising Republicans, I'd say, count that in the 270 column. If I were Democrats, I'd say, give that to the Republicans because you're not going to win that. It's just not going to happen. So I, I and, and, and again, my area of research has been focusing a lot on Hispanic voters. Like Cuban voters are not representative of the broader electorate. It's changing. Florida's changing. There are now just as many Puerto Rican voters as Cuban voters. But the Puerto Ricans went for the Republicans there, right? Like there's something <laughs> happening in Florida that is really kind of unique to Florida. And I, 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 the only reason I haven't spent much time on it is because it's kind of this weird, irrelevant outlier. Like what you learn about Florida is not indicative of anywhere else in the country. <laughs> I can tell you about North Carolina and why it makes sense with Georgia and Arizona and a lot of Wisconsin, because the demographics there do drive that. Florida, like what, I mean, I don't know, man. You got like the, the, <laughs> the villages is like a thing. Like I'm in South thing. Florida, so it's a little better. I claim that I'm in the Caribbean instead of yeah, claiming and, that I'm in the and, South. And that's a dynamic too, right? The, the money in South Florida is like, it's like Orange County, California money. It's like, there's a lot of Republic. It's like, there's like, the, the, the like there's like two bastions of rich white Republicans in America, <laughs> South Florida and Orange County, California. And, and they're just, they're these anomalies. Like they don't, they don't, it doesn't match up with other wealthy, white, educated people. They're just, they, I, I don't know. It's just, the, the only reason I haven't looked at it so much is because like I said, it's an, it's an outlier. It's not telling us anything except for like, just don't go there. It still boggles my mind though, when like the Venezuelan folks who are here and different, and they align with people who want to overthrow governments instead of aligning with people who don't want to overthrow governments. And I'm just like, I don't understand that given the history in Venezuela. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't understand this at all, at all. I don't, I mean, I, the, the thing about it is the only Venezuelans in America live in Florida. Like, I, I, 
I don't, I don't know how to help you. I feel bad. But like, okay, I, last one yeah. on South America. Last one. Yeah. My friend swears to me that yeah. um, there are secret tapes that are going to come out from the military in Brazil that's going to show that Bolsonaro won. Of course, not going to happen. Please, not going to happen, right? Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Florida, sorry, Mike, right? sorry. Your from Florida, right? Your neighbor's from Florida, I'm sure. No, my neighbor's from Brazil. Convinced oh. that there are these secret tapes that the military is going to do. It tells me in 15 days. December 15th is the day that we're going to find out that there yeah. was all this secret stuff. It's the same bullshit as you were hearing with Mike, <laughs> Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, saying, oh, I'm going to drop <laughs> evidence on this next date. The reason why you do that is you keep Bolsonaro relevant in the discussion long enough to either run again next time or to build a movement around him while also undermining confidence in the electoral system. So these, the conspiracy theory is very specific. Listen to what you're saying and, mm -hmm. and tell me if there aren't similarities. The okay. military, the military, right? Incredible institution on the right, probably the most credible institution, has proof that we really won and that data is coming out on a very specific date. <laughs> Now, when that date comes and that data isn't there, they're going to move the date to January 20th. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. That's what that's what Lindell was doing, right? Is they would keep moving the ball 30, 40, 50 days in order to keep the relevance and to keep the, the, the momentum and the energy behind the conspiracy theory going. It's designed to keep the the right-wing base. In this instance, it's, it's a left-wing thing, too. But it's designed to keep that cult focused on the prize. Don't go away. We didn't lose. They were lying. Our own guys have the data. There's a reason why there will be another excuse as to why it didn't happen, but it's coming in 30 days and it's <laughs> bigger than you thought. Like that's, that's right. It's literally from the playbook of what they were doing here. The okay. Way, one, sorry. What is that? May I ask one last question? You can ask one more. Sure. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm just asking you about all the different things because I haven't heard you for a week or two, Mike. I had to listen yeah. after the fact. No, 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 I listened, I'm but after. All good. <laughs> okay, so my question now, one more, totally not related, is: Has the church abandoned? Like, did the did the last election show that the evangelicals are waking up, or no? No. Ugh, dang it. You okay. know the answer to that. I know. I see you're it. Like, but... look, look, there's going to be a lot of news stories about the establishment saying Trump can't win and we need to change our ways. You even heard this story about kind of the Republicans sort of doing an autopsy similar to 2012. No, it's not going to change. <laughs> the pace is not going to change. Okay? The pace is not going to change. Uh, it breaks my heart, though, that evangelical is the base. Like, oh, that kills me. Come on. Well, and, and, and this is it's the same in Brazil, by the way. Yes, it and is. It's, it's essentially the same as the Greek Orthodox movement in Russia. Mm, okay. It, it's it's the seeds of nationalism that are being planted, and whenever politicians combine religion with nationalism, it's always leading towards an authoritarian movement. Ugh. That's what it is, and so that's this is an old playbook from centuries old, mm -hmm. and that's unfortunately, like I said, the tie between white Christian nationalism and right wing authoritarianism is is almost perfectly correlate now. It's, mm. it's it's almost perfectly correlate. So burn it all down, man. We got to well, burn it well, all down. It is. What's gonna the only you know what the only solution is? Tell Demographics. Me. 
the demography of the country is changing and it's changing rapidly. So and this, that the, we are working our way through a 20 year demographic bubble. I don't know if you've heard me talk about this. But yes. You're, you're right. So, I have so my, <laughs> we're about five years in, right? You said we're five to seven years yeah, in and California's exactly already right. kind of gone through. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're, that's exactly it. Is we're going through a demographic transformation. That's why I'm a big believer in demography. If you understand the demographics of social behavior, so you know social change, you can understand a, a, a country's politics. It's cultural. It's 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 it's, the, it's those. It's the way we view the world as as a species, as a human as human beings, and the conflicts with the way we deal with it is in democracy you know, determine these decisions that we make. But but fundamentally, this stuff is kind of, it's pretty predictable. You just, I mean, that's why I'm in, I'm, in, I'm interested in, in people and their backgrounds tell me so much of, of who they are. It's because that they, they, this stuff is, it's, it, it's, it comes from somewhere. It's lasting for a reason. These, these cultural attributes tell us things. And there are certain behaviors that cultures take on and they manifest themselves politically because of course they do. And of course they should. Politics is our external view of the world and the way we believe that it should be operating. Democracy is just the arena we've, we've chosen as a country to manifest that and try to, to live together as a very pluralistic society. Is it gonna work? Man, I don't know. We call it the American experiment for a reason. What I do know is this, for 250 years, the American experiment has been conducted by 85% white people. In 20 years from now, it's not, it's going to be a non-white plurality. White people are becoming a minority. And you know what? They're starting to behave like an aggrieved racial minority. They're getting scared. They're probably getting scared that they're going to be treated the way they've been treating other minorities for the past 250 years. Freaking them out a little bit, right? And that reaction is what is, is creating the backlash that is manifest in the American right. And it's tied directly to Christianity, evangelical Christianity, not Catholicism. Catholics aren't behaving this way politically. It's end of times scripture. It's rigid orthodoxy. It's evangelical Christianity. So it's not just about my view of religion and my view of my my nation. It's both become the same thing. The belief that America is a white Christian nation, which it is not. It was literally founded to not be. Right? Separation of church and state. Come on. Well, yeah. I mean, we were here. Yeah. So the pluralism, the, the belief that we can be different religions, different colors, different ethnicities, different. That's what Americanism is. That's what the American experiment is. It's been easy to conduct when everybody's basically white and Christian. It's not that hard to do. You start throwing in a lot of Latinos in there, a lot of Asian Pacific Islanders. We've got our traditional black coalition, put in some Muslims that aren't Christian. And suddenly it's like, well, wait a second. Now you got Fox News lighting it on fire, right? Like, whoa, like this is, these are not Americans. Which is absurd, but 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 it's biological more than it is political. Anyway, I've gone on really, really, really long. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it so Thank much. Thank you for your question, Jim. Always appreciate it. Peggy, we're gonna be bringing you up. You know, kudos to me here too, because like anybody who listens to the first few minutes, Peggy, did I just kick you out? 
I think I just kicked you out. Jump back into the queue, Peggy. Renee, you're up. Go ahead and unmute. I, I was really struggling in the first 10 minutes of this thing, and I got some water, and I had this really bad cough, but we've been going on for a little bit, so I, I appreciate you guys just hanging in there with me. Renee, North Carolina. Yeah. I um, I just wanted to echo a little bit of what you said about, you know, the suburbs of Atlanta. I actually, I, I just got home yesterday. I was um, doing some door knocking down in Gwinnett and DeKalb County. I, did, I spent two days in DeKalb and then um, I was in Gwinnett, like around Lawrenceville and um, Norcross area. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's like taking a walk through Brooklyn on a Saturday afternoon. It really is. It is a melting pot. Um, it is not what you, you what you would envision in your mind of a southern suburb to be. Yeah. Um, Thanks know, for and, and reiterating that. Yeah. And that makes it very different even from suburbs here in North Carolina, because North Carolina, um, like you're not going to see a whole lot of blending, um, say, in Cary outside of Raleigh or on the southern side of Charlotte or on the western side of Winston-Salem, um, which is really odd. Um, anyway, I, I really just jumped up here to ask you a quick question. Um, do you know how I can get my hands on precinct data and or regression analysis? Uh, for any specific region or just in general? In North Carolina, because I want to start looking at the numbers and have, you know, some, some stuff in front of me. Um, if possible, when I go down to back to Atlanta in February, um, so that they can look, you know, look at where we're at um, as far as who's voting where and what the data is and where we need to focus and that kind of thing. Okay, so I, this is a first on mic drop. You're like, you get a front row seat in the advanced class when you start asking for regression analysis. I mean, I love hearing that. <laughs> awesome. So, um, look, you should be able to get the, the two questions. One is precinct data, the raw data, and then the second is the regression analysis. Uh, the precincts data you can get from your counties, uh, which you should be able to get from your Secretary of State's office. You shouldn't have to call each individual counties. You should be able to get the actual raw data from the Secretary of State. Probably in North Carolina, I'm going to guess, probably in a mid to late January time frame, it will all be completed, certified, recounted, all the recalls done, all the recounts done for water boards and whatever small rural areas. Once it's done, 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 you can get all of that data, again, probably by the end of January is when it's probably going to be available. Secretary of State's office, publicly available data. You can get that precinct data. If you want to go to a vendor and buy it in a certain format, you can use what I use, a company called L2. Just go to L2.com and you can pick up L2 and tell them what you want and what format. It's going to cost you a little bit of a clip if you're going to buy the whole state of North Carolina. Regression okay. analysis, just so that everybody knows what regression analysis is, regression analysis is it allows you to isolate certain demographics to get a much more refined look at how those voters in that specific area voted differently or similarly from other voters in that area. So if you want to know how Latino voters in a certain county in North Carolina voted, you can use regression analysis to isolate those votes and give you a much, much better refined look. We can't tell you with 100% certainty how any voter voted, but we can tell you with a pretty good 
approximation how if you're a Latino voter who's a man who's over 45 registered as a Democrat in whatever county with a college degree, we know to a very high degree of certainty how you voted using what we call regression analysis. The tool to do that is usually an academic tool. And what we do is we, um, who, I don't know um, if it's a UNC or where in North Carolina they'll be doing some of this type of regression analysis, but I can guarantee. Probably Campbell. I would think Campbell. You would know. They they have a really. um, They are really uh, politically active. They do a whole lot of polling, all that kind of stuff. So I would think Campbell would probably be involved now. If if not UNC Charlotte, I mean UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. So here's here's what I would do: is take a look at one of those three. Contact the political science department, like okay. me. Any anybody member of the public who's interested in regression analysis, they're going to be like, "Whoa, that's awesome!" Yeah, we'll share this with you, and they'll tell you what they're working on and share that academic work with you. I'm going to guess 99 times out of 100, unless it's something top secret, is they will share with you the votes that they're doing and what they're probably pulling out in that regression analysis is enough of the data that you're probably interested in. So it's going to be more like women, African-American voters, Latino voters, kind of basic stuff. They're not looking too much deeper than that basic demography to get a sense and understanding of how those voting blocks performed. But any political science department will have those tools. And 99 times out of 100, you just got to find the right professor who's going to be like, yeah, you want to like nerd out on regression analysis. Come on over and check out this cool stuff that we're doing. And they would be happy to to uh, just share it with you. Okay, I just want to you know try to arm myself with as much information as I possibly can, you know, before I start trying to um, make plans and you know all that kind of stuff. I just want to understand, you know, the the broader strokes of what's going on and and where we need to do the work. Um, you're going to be. You know. I, I predict you're going to be a great political consultant. Um, <laughs> you love this stuff, and you. I love that you're going to Georgia to help out and the, and the race driving down there to help out. And um, like I said, you've got a passion for it and a knack for it. North Carolina is going to be, I think, a very, very pivotal state. I don't think enough people are paying attention to it for the 2024 map. I think it's going to be key uh, to 270 for, for Republicans and Democrats. Um, yeah, it's be I've, one been, I've been trying to push that message as much as possible. So hopefully somebody, you know, um, well, listen, I've been in six district offices so far since the midterm election was over and said, OK, we need to do something here. So yeah. um, we'll see. Try those universities. And if not, I will um, I'll call Zach and see if he's got a vendor that is going to be doing some analysis for the party. Um, okay. The DNC should be doing it. I don't know that they are. I don't know them that well. But I mean, yeah. that, that's the kind of detailed autopsy look that the Democrats should be doing um, right. and probably are doing. Um, but the, if I if we can't get you that data, we can get you in touch with the people that you need to know to get those questions answered and where you can be helpful and, and really focus your time, effort, and energy. I think I'd appreciate it. Okay, that. thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate you sharing your time with me. Anytime, Renee. Thanks for joining the show and being a part of this. Go ahead and unmute, Leah. Got to unmute the microphone. Hello. 
Hey, Bye. how are you? Good, how are you? Good, how are things? Good, pretty good, pretty good. Um, I feel like I have a million questions I've always wanted to ask you. So I'm gonna ask like the dumbest one, this is definitely not as sophisticated about your last callers. Uh, but I had a question and I feel bad if like it was brought up earlier because I tuned in a little bit late, but I have to go here. So the Kanye West deal with Trump, I mean, does that hurt his chances at all? Because it seems like it's something that's like really been you know, with things with him, it's like one day it's in the media, the next, you know, he'll do something terrible three days later and everyone will forget about the first thing. But is this going to affect the way that people vote for him in primaries or even the way that people view him in general? I I don't know that it will. Okay. I, 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 I don't know that it matters. I think that you are seeing like the Mitch McConnell's who's responding now into, um, you know, this is the first time McConnell has publicly come out basically and, 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 and thrown a grenade back at Trump. And I think it's, it's not surprising that it's happened at um, the same time that uh, McConnell just put up strong numbers in the leadership vote. So I, I look, I think, I think that um, this gives more fodder to those who want to be anti-Trump. And I, I'm only pulling my punches on this because I've seen this story before. Right. Is there, you know, Trump did this shit in 2016 and they would all say bad stuff, but when push came to shove, that's where they were all at. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this is not, this is not, you know, this, this doesn't knock him out of contention by any stretch of the imagination. I just didn't know if it was maybe making him look like at some point it was like at first it made him look aggressive and, you know, anti-Semitic, but now it's like, it almost seems like he's just kind of not, it's like, he seems like the sleepy, you know, candidate who's kind of a tired, I don't, he just seems like he's not paying attention to what's going on around him. You know what I mean? Like he's not as sharp as he used to be. Trump? So I don't know if that, yeah, yeah, yes. I, I think he's just in legal trouble. Like I said, okay. I, don't think, yeah. I don't think he's running because he necessarily wants to be president, although I think he does. He's just, the problems that he's facing that are right in front of him are much more significant on the legal front. Okay. I, I think that's why he's he's in this. I look, I thought it was, a, I thought it was a, a, a really, really bad rollout. We talked about it here on the show when he announced for president, it was, it was atrocious. It was probably the worst presidential yeah. announcement I think I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. And terrible um, timing. Yeah. yeah, it was the, it was just, it's just bad. It's a bad look. I think people want to move on, but, you know, moving on as the establishment and moving on, you know, after you placated the base for six years, I mean, good luck with it. That's why I, that's, I, I really can't underscore enough how precarious I think the Republican coalition is. And rather than allowing it to reconstitute itself and work itself out, the Democrats need to go on offense. They just need to attack, attack, attack. I totally agree. Yeah, and I totally agree. They, I, I totally agree. Instead of taking the high road, like, why can't they be more aggressive? Just get in there and, and just cause more and more trouble is what I would be doing. So we'll, yeah, we'll see. I mean, they may. We'll see. They have a lot of material to go off of right now. So. They've got a lot to work with. Yeah. Yeah, they do. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything you Good. do. Yeah, thanks. Great to hear from you. Appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later. Peggy. We are going to get you into the queue. I think I kicked you out last time, but there you are.
We'll go ahead and un unmute. Hi, Mike. Am I still here? <laughs> You're here. Sorry about all that. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so speaking about the Democrats being aggressive, I'm particularly happy about Hakeem Jeffries being uh, the new Democratic speaker. And I'm wondering if you think that he'll be part of what might drive a wedge in that um, Republican, in the, in the mess that the Republicans have in the House. I mean, he's such a strong personality, you know? Yeah, it's so, it's so, I mean, this is a big moment. And I, I, I'm not too sure that everyone's reflecting on it as much as we probably should. I mean, Nancy Pelosi leaving the leadership is really a big deal. I mean, you know, and, and look, I've, I've come later in life to really respect the masterful work that she did as speaker, not as a Democrat, as a Republican, but just as a legislative leader. I mean, they're going to have to name a building after after Nancy Pelosi. And, and this is, you know, coming from a guy who's who won a lot of races running against Nancy Pelosi for, for many, many years. She's just she's just a part of American history. So I want to give her credit where it's due. Um, I think that this newer generation, you know, it's going to be weird to when I was in Georgetown as an undergrad, Steny Hoyer was in that position. <laughs> Steny Hoyer has been there, I think, since. The War of 1812? I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Democratic leadership has been there forever. And I think this is really, really good for them. Hakeem obviously is, is I think, a, not just a, a fresh new face, but a, a whole bold new level of energy. Mm -hmm. Pete Aguilar has been a friend of mine since he was a city councilman in the city of Redlands. Absolutely. Uh, Pete Aguilar, yes. Yeah, Pete's been a buddy of mine for a long, long time. He, you know, these are younger people that have a, a, a more aggressive style of politics. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to confession myself because of my involvement in making politics as acerbic and, and, and rough and tumble as it's become. But, you know, the younger people, this is kind of what politics is. It's, 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 it's more of a blood sport. And I think the Democrats have needed that. I think the Republicans have been that way for a long time. I think it's in the nature of people who become Republicans. I think we're just scrappier. I think we 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 uh, we fight differently, um, and I think that a younger generation of of politicians and leaders are going to do the Democratic Party a lot of good. It's also just a great visual contrast to the America that's emerging and the America that's you know in decline. Uh, I hate to put it that way, but that's just, that's just what it is. The leadership. No, absolutely. The it's demographics. It's demographics, man. You got Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy and, and Biggs in one side. And then you look at Hakeem Jeffries and, and Pete Aguilar. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a different caucus. It's a different caucus and it's a different approach. It's a, it's not just, it's not just racially and, and, and ethnically more diverse, it's generationally different. And I think that's going to be the biggest, the biggest um, pop for the Democrats is, is the Democratic Party's just been so damn old for so damn long. Yeah. And uh, that's changing. And that's good because their base, their base is different. And, and this is reflective of their base. And I think that that can only be a good, a good thing, not just like, like I said, in terms of diversity, but in, in terms of generational approach, this is really young people 
look, I've been a little bit dismissive of uh, just because the data has been dismissive on the Gen Z saving America and whatever they, you know, these, these folks say they work out good for them. God bless them. If that's what gets you up in the morning and keeps you going, then that's great. The data doesn't bear that out, but who cares? You know, if, if that gets you excited. But what I will say is this, the, the leaders of this new generation coming up, these are, these are people on a mission. Like they're, they're, they're very committed in a way that I think even, you know, certainly my generation was not. And the, the times just demand a different approach for young people. It's like, I think they really feel like they're, they're on a, they're on a time clock. They're, you know, they're in the fourth quarter here with global warming and the rise of authoritarianism and the end of democracy and shit's coming apart. I mean, I see it with my own kids. Like there's just, there's a different approach. When I graduated from high school, man, the wall had just fallen. America was the, the global hegemon and freedom won. It was the end of history, right? Francis Fukuyama says this is the end of history. Like the good guys won. And America didn't know what to do with that. And so we spent 30 years kind of flailing and misguided and not leading the world, I think, in a way that we should have. And as a result, you know, we never, we never envisioned what America was going to be in the post-Cold War, Cold War era. And so when I look at what's happening in Ukraine, when I look at what's happening in Brazil, when I'm looking at what's happening to these other authoritarian movements, it's the same Cold War mentality. Young people aren't buying that. They're not, they're not, they're not buying what we're selling. And you know what? Good for them. It doesn't work. And it shouldn't work. And I think in a lot of ways, younger people have a better understanding of the world and its interactions than older people do. So again, don't mean to go off on a, on a, on a Mike Madrid rant here, but I just, I, I think that generational change, usually it comes along begrudgingly, but damn, if Nancy Pelosi and, and Hoyer and those folks didn't hold the line, you know, and, 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 and keep the barbarians at the gates and keep, keep the opportunity open for the Republic to, to continue working for at least the next two years, I mean, it's just such a big deal. And then to, then to just hand it over and say, did the best we could, man. Here it is. Here's the torch. Go run with it and, 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 and you know, go forth and prosper. I just, I think it's a good moment for democracy. I think it's a great moment for the Democratic Party. And if these guys are smart, then, you know, they're going to run a full frontal assault on the, on the Republican Party. And I think that that's where we're at is charge the line, break their line, un unleash the cavalry, draw your swords, attack the line, head into the cannon, just knock down the line, just punch it. And what's exactly, that? Exactly why I'm asking, because I see, I, I sort of have a sense of that. And that Pelosi was so that she's comfortable stepping down tells me something too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know what, she's, she's, I mean, she's given so much, she, she's older. And look, look what happened to her husband. I mean, God. Jesus. Yeah, they don't need this shit. Who needs that at that age? Go hang out on the beach in Mexico. Chill out a little bit. I know she was ready to step down in 2016, but then Trump got elected. So, you know. So let me ask you one other thing. Yeah. Um, this stuff with Hunter Biden, do you think it gets so stressful and it becomes so that Biden gets so distraught that he steps down and lets Kamala take the helm? No. I, I, think this is, I think this is Beltway talk. I think, you know, like I remember when like the, the, the clamor around D.C. was get rid of Dan Quayle. You know, you got to get rid of Dan Quayle. And then, you know, Clinton's like, you got to dump Al Gore. Like this is this is parlor room talk in D.C. I'm not saying that there isn't, you know, some concern about it. But look, the biggest victor 
the biggest victor on uh, in the midterms wasn't Nancy Pelosi as much as I think she deserves more credit than she got. It was Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. I mean, no one's, you know, it's like, well, how can you come after Joe Biden after that and say, you need to hang up the cleats? Like, no, like you, you just can't. And I'm not, I, I look, I don't think Joe Biden's ever going to be the guy that inspires passion like a, like a Barack Obama, right? right. He's, he's not that guy, but he's, he, he does, he's kind of Joe from Scranton. He just kind of gets it done. And, and um, I think that's just his style. And I think his style is, 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 is look, he's, he's clumsy, but, but he's, he's competent. And the clumsiness is actually, I think, his greatest strength, right? Because the, the expectations are low for this guy. And in politics, when expectations are low, you're in the catbird seat because you're always overperforming. You're always shocking people. You're always surprising people, right? Biden's record of success is pretty damn good throughout his whole career because no one's ever had really high expectations of him. So he's always overperforming. And that's that's a real gift for a politician. And and don't think that that's just happenstance. That's he knows what he's doing. That I know. I always have confidence. He knows what he's doing. I just worry that the way the House Republicans are going to attack his kid is just. Oh, it's going to be brutal. Yeah. Uh, but I will say this, the more brutal it is, the better it is for him politically. I mean, it's horrible for his family. It's horrible yeah. for the country with what we're going to have to go through. But the truth of the matter is it probably cements and locks in Biden's reelection. Like I said, fundamental. It's hard right. to be incumbent. It's hard to be incumbent, especially when you are showing yourself to be extremists. And the Republicans, it's going to be on full display. It's going to be just such a bad look. This is like Hobbs sitting back in Arizona and letting Lake be so crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know? a lot of you guys remember the 1998 cycle. Yeah, when sure. Bill Clinton's, you know, the midterms and Bill Clinton's second term, there's a Monica Lewinsky stuff that's coming down. And, and it was supposed to be a huge Republican year, huge. And the Republicans ended up getting their ass kicked. And nobody saw it coming. I mean, the polling was not as good as it is then as it is now. And, it, you know, it, it destroyed Newt Gingrich's, you know, career came on wow, It was so bad. And it was because the Republicans overplayed their hand. It's like, yeah, e even if the president did do this, yeah, the, the president committed perjury. Yeah, this is, this is embarrassing as Americans, but you don't impeach a president over stuff like this. Right. Like, this, is, this is for serious stuff. And the January 6th stuff was serious stuff. Like, it, it wasn't on the top of people's minds in January of this year. But by the elections, like I was saying on politicology, you know, regularly, this was a great strategy. There's a lot of Democrats saying, why are we talking about this? Let's go talk about policy. Let's go talk about policy. And the Republican media is just like going, screw the freaking policy. That's Absolutely. not what moves voter. That's not, it may move Democrats, but you already have the Democrats. The way you get independence and they'll peel off those Republicans is by showing these people to be crazy right wing nutbag extremists that they are. And they did. And I think that they did a, a marvelous, marvelous job. I know there's going to be another couple of hearings before the end of the year to kind of, you know, close it up. But what, what a service they did. Look, there's, oh, a, incredible. there's a reason why Joe Biden's last speech was a second iteration on the threats to the republic. And people yes. were like, what are you doing? And the answer is he was looking at the data as people were saying, we got to get these voters over. We've already, we've already maximized the turnout we're going to get from young people 
with Dobbs, with Roe Wade. We've, we, we goosed it even more with the college loan forgiveness. Like there's no more to get and it's not going to be enough based off of the historical trend line. And you know what? They were right. Young people showed up, but they weren't in these massive numbers. They weren't very much higher than they normally are. The Democrats running the campaign, they were professionals. They knew this. They knew this because it's a fundamental 30-year line that tells you this is how much we're going to get. It doesn't matter what the hell's going on. It doesn't matter what is going on. We're only going to get so much of this vote. If we don't get Republicans to leave the Republican Party, at least in the single digits, mid, sing, mid to high single digits, we're, we're screwed. And you know what? We don't talk about this enough because it's not the popular narrative, but Republicans turned out in bigger numbers than Democrats did. The electorate was more Republican, it was more white, and it was older than it was in 2020 or 2018. And the Democrats still did well. What does that mean? It means that Republicans and conservative independents left the party. That's significant. That's, That's a big what, deal. That is what's so hopeful about what happened. I mean, it's great that young people were excited. It's great that, you know, Latinos and African-Americans, they didn't show up in huge numbers, but they showed up in decent numbers. It's great that women were, were motivated by, by what they were motivated by, but that wasn't enough. That's not what happened. What happened is you had Republicans literally showing up on the first Tuesday in November saying, I don't agree with any of this policy shit, but man, these guys are going to destroy the country. So I'm voting for the country against my own interests, against what I believe. And that's what democracy is. Voting against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's acknowledging that you don't get everything that you want. That's the price of admission of being an American. You don't get everything that you want. And that's what the Republican Party has been selling its base for a long freaking time, which is if we don't get it all, then burn it down. And that's not the way it works. It can't work that way. Anyway. Thank you, Mike. Pat, great to hear from you. Thanks for being patient and hanging into the line. Leo, we're going to do this last call. My voice is gone. Um, but I'm sure you've got a great question. So go ahead and unmute and let's wrap it up with whatever you got. <coughs> Leah? I think Leah fell asleep on us, guys. No, I'm sorry. I didn't even know that I was on the, in the oh. call. You uh, So I'm sorry. Ignore that. Your voice is gone. So... Uh... If I'm last, then you're done. Do you have a question? Let's no, it. I don't. I'm sorry. I have no. I honestly, oh. I have no idea how that hit. Okay. Well, sorry. Well, I, you probably just wanted to welcome you back up on stage because it was a great first I, question. I was messing with my phone. I'm sorry. I have no idea how that happened. No problem. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. <laughs> thanks, thanks for a great episode. We'll do this again uh, on Wednesday. Sorry if I didn't cover too much of the topic at hand, but we had a great discussion as always. Uh, Wednesdays. We're going to try and do 5.30. My bad again this time. I jumped on at 5. Let's do 5.30 and 8.30. Unless you guys don't like that time, shoot it to me. I'm trying to get as, as convenient a time as possible between our East Coast and our West Coast folks. Um, thanks again for joining Mic Drop. We'll do it again next Wednesday.